What a thing to be called a friend of God. Isn't that amazing? That's just an amazing thing. Last week I shared with you a little bit of trivia uh, about uh, when I asked Monica to marry me. And that was by the Sea of Galilee. So that was a pretty cool event, you know. Um, but that never would have happened without some special friends in our lives. Because I was a single um, youth pastor in, in a church without a lot of, of prospects even close to my age. And, and, uh, and I was probably just a little shy, too, I guess you could say. But I had a friend who, uh, who thought, boy, if Dave Grave would just spend a little bit of time knowing Monica Jiggins then I know that they would hit it off. And to make a long story short, when he and his fiance decided to get married and uh, they had their wedding, they decided to put Monica and I in the wedding together. And they arranged it so that we would have to walk together and the rest is history. So I have walked the aisle twice with Monica. And the first time was to, to get to know her. The first time was a setup, but it worked. And I say that because uh, we have some friends visiting us today, Jerry and Sherry, Bobby, right here, and they are the friends that actually got us together. So thank you guys for coming today. And, uh, and he's probably embarrassed that, I, that I'm saying all this uh, from the pulpit. But you know what? They're, they're good friends. They're visiting us uh, for today. From, uh, they're from the ugly side of the state, um, uh, southeastern side of the state. And uh, downriver from Detroit, but uh, we're glad to have him here on the pretty side of the state. So as you see him in the hallways, trying to convince him to come to the pretty side of the state. So we'd love to have him here. Uh, but it's, it's good to have you, and, and good to have all the visitors that are here with us today, too. It's so it's, we're, we're glad to see every new face here. Amen? Amen. And so we're glad that you're here. Well, we're, uh, we're going to continue on in, into the story of Joshua, on our journey with Joshua. So if you turn to Joshua chapter 2. Um, that's where we will be. We'll be between Joshua 2 and a place in Numbers uh, uh, pretty much uh, most of the time this morning. Uh, last week, we really talked about some of the lessons that they need in order to move forward. And the lessons were of, of unity and authority. And once they had those, those things kind of in place, they were ready to move forward, ready to enter the promised land. This week is exciting because for the first time in 40 years, we see the feet of Israelite people inside the promised land. Not all of them, but at least some of them. We have Israelite people entering the promised land. And that's an exciting, that's an exciting thought. And really, from this, this point forward in the, in the story of Joshua, we find that God is teaching his people, Israel, the way of wisdom. And, uh, and so when you think of the way of wisdom, in fact, wisdom begins with what? It says multiple times in Proverbs. What is the beginning of wisdom? Fear. The fear of God. Exactly. Today, and, and really uh, next week we're going to be talking as well about the fear of man and the fear of God. This week we'll be focusing more on the fear of man and how it becomes an obstacle to our fear of God. And next week we'll be focusing a little bit more on the fear of God. But with that in mind, let's go to Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So now Joshua, son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of, of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. You know, this, here we have the, what we call the second spy account. Because remember, there was the first spy account. And, and if I could just take a little commercial from the, from the message itself today, and uh, just to share that in Hebrew literature, one of the, it, it works a lot like dot-to-dot -dot puzzles. Remember the dot-to-dot -dot puzzles that you used to do when you were a kid? 
And at first you look at this page and all you see is a bunch of dots with numbers on them, right? And it doesn't really resemble anything. But as you start connecting point one to point two, and point two to point three, and point three to point four, what happens? That picture starts to become clear. You get an idea of what's going on. Hebrew scripture, Hebrew narrative especially, with the stories in the Old Testament, uh, we find are a lot like that, where you have little stories and they connect to other stories, and then you start looking and you start connecting the dots and the pictures begin to, to take place. So we're going to do that a little bit today because if this is the second uh, spy account, then that means that there was a first, first spy account. And so we're going to look a little bit at the first spy account and, and uh, the second account. Just to give a little timeline to, to remember where we are, uh, in Numbers 13 we have the first spy account, and this is really the first time we come across Joshua. Because Joshua was one of the 12 spies. And you remember the story. Ten said, let's not go into the promised land. Two said, let's go into the promised land. And people went with the majority. And, uh, and that was not following God's command. So what happened then after that? Forty years wandering in the wilderness, learning the lessons that we talked about yesterday. Or yesterday, last week. So they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness... To learn the lessons that they didn't have with the first spy account. And then we come to Joshua chapter 2, and now we have this second spy account. So let's compare the, these two spy accounts and see what we can learn as we, as we look at what's the same, what's the difference between these two spy accounts, because we're going, I think we'll learn a lot about the fear of God by doing so. If we look at the, uh, the first spy account, how many spies were sent? Exactly, 12 spies. Keeping a finger or keeping your bulletin or something in Joshua 2, because we will be coming back to Joshua 2. Let's, let's take a look at Numbers chapter 13 as well. Numbers 13. Looking at verses 1 and 2. Third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. That's four, isn't it? My math is bad this morning. You think I'd do better when it's a book called Numbers. <laughs> All right, but Numbers, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So there were how many tribes? Twelve. Twelve. They sent how many per tribe? One, which means there were a total of twelve men, twelve spies. But when we come to Joshua, I just find it very interesting that, that it's done in a very different way. How do we find it in, uh, uh, in, in Joshua 2, verse 1? There's how many spies? Two. two spies. In fact, if we look at that again, and again, we're going back and forth between the two. Keep a finger in Numbers 13, but uh, we find that uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. Now Joshua, son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly. He didn't elect anybody. He didn't do this in a public way. He just skipped straight to the two. And I can't help but just think of, of, of Joshua being one in charge now. And he was, he played, he's one of the few people alive, one of the, the two people alive from the first one, uh, from the first spy account. He was one of those two men. And if you think back from his perspective, he, he and Caleb shared the truth. They were excited to go into the promised land. And because of the ten, what happened? They couldn't go into the promised land. And they convinced everybody, and nobody could go into the promised land. And 
So I, you get this image of him saying, let's just skip the whole 10 part. <laughs> let's just go with the two, right? Let's just start with the two. It's kind of skipping that whole mentality in the num of the numbers. Now, in, with, with the, in the time of Moses, when Moses sent out the spies, he was obeying the Lord. The Lord told him to send out 12 because I think the, lo the Lord knew. Didn't, don't you think the Lord knew ahead of time that the people weren't ready? And so he was allowing it to happen in such a way that it would expose the fact that they weren't ready to go into the promised land. But now they're in the time of Joshua, and he says, let's just send the two guys. And I, I find that kind of interesting. We also find uh, uh, a difference in here. I don't know if this just died. All right, can, uh, can, uh, can we just advance it verbally then? Because this is not working anymore. Or, uh, yeah, or, but the other way. <laughs> All right. All right. All right, he's fine. All right, but let's look at the instructions in, uh, in, in chapter 2, because what we find that the instructions in, uh, in Joshua 2 are very simple. And Joshua told them in, the, in the chapter uh, 2, verse 1, he just said, simply, you the land. Look at the, at the way Joshua words in chapter two, 2, verse 1. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy sacredly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Six words in English. One quick sentence. Just go and view the land, especially Jericho. Jericho being uh, important because where they were camped, they were right across the Jordan River, and the first city that they're going to come across is Jericho. In fact, if you, if you ever get a chance to go to Jericho, I don't recommend it right now, but if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, go to Jericho, you, you can see the Jordan River from there. And, and uh, so they were within a, a visible range where they were camped from Jericho. So they said, go into the Israel, just view the land, and spy it out. Now that's very different in one way and very similar in another way to the directions that we find if we go back to Numbers 13. So if you look at Numbers 13, we find that they were also told to see the land. But let's take a look at verses uh, uh, 17 through 20. Verses 17 through 20 of chapter 13. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like. So, so far, that's very similar to what we find in Joshua 2. But Moses continues. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether, they are, whether there are forests there or not. Be of courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. For now is the time of the season of the first ripe grapes. Do you see a difference between the way jo what Joshua told the spies to do and what Moses told the spies to do? I mean, if you, if you look at it, it's similar in the, in, at the beginning because Joshua said, go to the land. Moses had told them, go check out the land, go see the land. But what did Moses add that Joshua did not? Besides viewing the land, besides observing the land, what did he also tell them to observe? The people of the land. In fact, we put them into a couple different categories. First, are they strong or are they weak? Why would Moses want to know that? Because if they're strong, it might be harder to win the victory, right? I mean, if they're weak, great. We should be encouraged. But if they're strong, ooh, then maybe... 
maybe we ought not to do this. Or, or he also asked them if there were, gonna, if there were a few of them or uh, many of them. Why is that important to Moses? Well, because if you're taking on a few people, yeah, you're going to win. And, but if you take on a lot of people, then maybe not. Or he also uh, talked about if, if they were living in tents or living in fortified cities. Are these camps? Because if you're going to a, uh, to a land and everyone's like they're Bedouins and they've got sheep and they're living in tents, it might be a lot easier to take them over. From a human perspective, it makes sense to ask these questions, doesn't it? It does. Or do they have fortified walls? Because those are a lot harder to get into, a lot harder to tear down, aren't they? Again, from a human perspective. He also asks if they're rich or poor. That's the idea. Well, are we talking about just going into a poor place where you know, they don't have a whole lot? Because I think we could, we could probably win that kind of a battle. But if, the, if this is a, a, a good economy and these people are doing well, then they're going to be able to afford uh, to, to take us on. And this is it's not going to be good. All of these things, all of these questions that Moses added to this list are exposing a fear of man. Because he was asking about the wanted information about the people. Why? Because there's this inward sense of a fear of man that we have. And I'm telling you, the fear of man is the obstacle to the fear of God. Is it not? When we begin to fear man, and it's really what this boils down to is the fear of man. And the fear of man shows up in several forms. And I, I want to look at that today. And really, we're going to show how these, these are, are parallel to the forms that showed up in the life of Moses. And we're going to see that the fear of man shows up in our own lives, even today, in the same way. So if we take the first, uh, the first thing that Moses was concerned about was if they were strong, if they were strong or weak. So if, if we tend to, by nature, fear people who are stronger than us, do we not? That doesn't have to be physical strength. Maybe they have more authority, more power in one sense or another. But by nature, people, we put ourselves in the categories of superior and inferior. And if someone is stronger than me, then he is superior. If he's weaker than me, then I am superior. That's the human nature, is it not? That's just the way we are by nature. And so if we are the inferiors, we become very intimidated by the superiors. Fear of man shows up in our intimidation. We become intimidated by human beings. From the world's perspective, intimidation is the obvious, natural response to someone being more powerful than us. Like there, this is a, a, a picture of a couple of dogs, right? And uh, this, this comes from despair.com, and if you know my sense of humor, I enjoy this because you've seen those motivational posters that they have in offices everywhere. These are demotivational posters. And uh, so this one says, intimidation. And I know you probably can't read the words from there, so I'll read it for you, but... Um, it says, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. But you'd be a fool to withhold that from your superiors. You catch that? <laughs> of course. No, you, you hear all those sayings out there. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. But you'd be a fool to withhold that from your superiors. Because you've got this huge dog, this little dog. And of course, which one's going to win in a fight? Yeah, the, the big one is probably going to swallow the other one. And... Uh, but instead of looking at our opponents this way, when, when we know that we, are, uh, that we have the presence of God with us, when, we, when we're doing what God has called us to do, and we're fighting the enemies of God, instead of looking at it this way, we should probably look at it a little bit more like this small, skinny child who 
has aspirations of being a sumo wrestler. <laughs> right? We should be looking at it in a different way. Why? Because, because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a, a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. That was the advice that Paul gave to Timothy, who, by the way, was young in ministry, and he was a new pastor, and he was intimidated by some of the people in his church. What does Paul say? Timothy, do not be intimidated. Do not fear men. Why? Because God has given us a, a, a spirit of, or has given, not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love that was sound mind. Amen? And when we stare at the enemies of God down, oftentimes they look awful and intimidating. And they, they can be people of more authority than us. They can be sometimes even in our own government, right? Where, and uh, we have governments that would persecute Christians all around the world. And I can imagine that those governments seem awful and intimidating. But you know what? God has not given us a spirit of fear. Amen? He's given us a spirit of love. Well, let's look at the uh, the second thing. Moses was concerned whether or not there were uh, there were few or many. He was just concerned that if there's a few, we can take them on. But if there's many, then then that's not going to work out. And we see that we see that concept multiple times in Scripture and how uh, how God combats that. But you know, by nature, as human beings, what do we tend to do? We tend to follow the crowd. If the fewer, if the if the few are are doing something this way, and the majority are doing something that way, by nature, what do we do? We look to the majority, we see what they're doing, and we just kind of follow the crowd. It's human nature. We can depend on that. In fact, if you're uh, new and your your children came today, all we had to do is tell them to go out those doors. We didn't have to give them directions where to go. Why? Because we know ahead of time they're going to follow the crowd. They'll get to their teachers. The teachers will divide them up and show them where to go. It's just human nature. There's a video that I'd like to show you in just a moment. Um, that it's an old video. It comes from uh, uh, from Candid Camera, but they ran what is now oftentimes called the Ash Experiment, or sometimes called the Elevator Experiment. But it really reveals how we are as human beings, because we tend to follow those around us, regardless of how crazy that might seem. So hopefully this works. Hopefully there are no te technical glitches. But the gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat
in the elevator. First he makes a full turn to the rear and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door, everybody's changed positions. <laughs> concerned about whether or not they were in tents or in fortified cities. Are they, are, they, are they in camps or are they in fortified cities? Do they have tents? Do they have walls? And this reveals this sense of worry or defenselessness that oftentimes we have. When we fear men, we worry. Because when you think about it, every time we worry, we're taking our focus off of how powerful God is and we're putting our focus on what? How powerful our problem is, how powerful the people that are causing the problem are. We're putting our focus on the wrong things. God asks us to fight the evil in our world, and how do we respond? You know, I, I think of, of the enemies that uh, the Israelites were going to face, and yeah, they're, they, they, they were trained, they had armor, they had everything. Some of them were giants, um, but how do we respond when God, when God says, well, go fight these giants? Oftentimes we, we respond like sissies, don't we? I hate to use that word like a sissy, but you know what? Sometimes we are spiritual sissies. Can I say that word? We are spiritual sissies. Why? Because we have this worry 
when we, we should be looking at how big our God is instead of looking at how big our enemies are. Right. Amen? Amen? We look at, at, at these problems and we think, oh, there's no way that, that this is going to, to resolve itself, the situation, because, well, this person's in charge of that and this person can do that. And we forget who's in charge of them all and that it's our God who's in charge of them all. The problem with Moses and the Israelites in Numbers 13 is that they focused on the size of their enemies instead of focusing on the size of their God. And they failed. God had to teach them lessons. We come to the book of Joshua, and it's not the same. In 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 17, when they found themselves against an innumerable enemy, we find these words. It says, you will not need to fight this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. One of the first things we learn, we learn in the book of Joshua is we have the promise of the presence of God with his people. We, we learn that and if God is with you, then even when we're fighting the battles, are we really fighting the battles? And we're going to see this as we go through the next weeks and months. We're going to see time and time again where, yeah, they're asked to fight the battles, but who's really pulling the strings? Who's really making it happen? It's God. And the sooner we learn that lesson, the, so the sooner we'll be able to enjoy all the things that God has for us. Because it's the fear of man that becomes the ob uh, obstacle. I almost said obstacle. <laughs> it's the obstacle to the fear of God. The last thing that we find in, in Moses' instructions uh, to, the, to the spies is whether or not the land is rich or poor. Whether or not the people are rich and you know what? As much as we hate to admit it, we oftentimes judge people based on if they're rich or poor, if they're successful or not. And we have this sense of fearing people based on their success in this world. In fact, I was talking to a guy down in, in Florida a few months ago, several months ago. And it just seems like as I'm talking to him, there was name dropping. Have you ever talked to someone like that? It's like, oh, I was talking to this guy. He led this guy to the Lord, and he's a professional baseball player. And then I talked to this guy, and, well, this guy, well, you know, this, and, and, and just kind of all these things. And I'm excited for that. You know, I'm glad that a professional baseball player accepts the Lord. But I'm also excited if someone walks off the street, and maybe he's a, a janitor at school or, or a gas station attendant or whatever it might be, and they come in and accept Jesus Christ, that's just as exciting, isn't it? But sometimes, we, by nature, we kind of put people in these categories like, this person's more important than if, if a celebrity accepts the Lord as their Savior, then we're all excited. In fact, if they even just say, oh, I thank the Lord for this victory that we had in a basketball tournament or something, then, then we then oh, they must be saved. And we lift them up on a pedestal, and it's just not so. They're people, just like you, just like me. Um, we call this favoritism. You know, actually, probably one of the, the men that I respect the most, one of the men that I respect the most is not a rich guy. In fact, he's probably one of the poorest men I've ever met. His name is Rosindo. He, is a, he's a, he trains pastors among the Quechua Indians in Ecuador. And they usually pay him with chickens or cui. If you've never eaten cui, count yourself blessed. <laughs> I have eaten cui, and it's not a great thing. It's basically a guinea pig, right? But they pay him in chickens and quee on a good day. And 
he is so poor, and he works with 80 different churches up in the mountains in Ecuador. Super poor. But I can't wait to see what he gets as a reward in heaven. I can't wait. He deserves it. I look up to him. He's up here in my book. Why? Because you can't fear men based on their earthly success. That's called favoritism. But can favoritism ever enter even into the church? It sure can. In fact, uh, uh, there's a TV show called The Shark Tank. When I think of scary things, shark is towards the top of the list, right? But the shark tank is actually not about sharks. There are no sharks in the shark tank. <laughs> what is the shark tank really about? It's a group of rich people that they call sharks. You have these rich people, and, and, you, and if you have an idea of a business you want to get started, you can come and talk to these rich people, but they're scared to death of these people. Why? Because of earthly success. If you were to look at maybe some of their marriages, some of the relationships they have with family members, not so successful. But they're successful in one way, and we tend to look up, we lift them up, and, uh, and, and make them scary. It's the fear of man. But James 2, verses 1 through 7, uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll read it. Um, James 2, verses 1 through 7, we read, My brethren, do not um, hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Same word as favoritism. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come a poor man in filthy clothes, and you would pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, Oh, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, Oh, you stand over there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Does God approve of favoritism? Absolutely not. Why? Because it all boils down to the fact that it is fear of man. That's what it means when God says, I am not a respecter of persons. He doesn't lift us up and put us in categories based on our categories. He doesn't fear us. But when we look at this and we see the difference between uh, what, we, what we read in Numbers 13 and what we read in Joshua chapter 2, we find that the bottom line is this. The people of Israel in the day of Moses, they feared man over God. And if you don't think that the, the, the commands that Moses gave them have anything to do uh, with the results, let's, look at, let's actually look at what they, they said in Numbers 13, verses 27 through, uh, 27 through 33. This is the report of the, of the spies. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us, and it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. If it stopped in verse 27, that would have been a great report. But they were also answering some other questions. Look at verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are, for we are able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is the land that devours its inhabitants. And the people uh, whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, who came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were... 
their sight. You see what's going on? It's the fear of man. They were afraid of them. We, they said, in our own sight, we're grasshoppers. And in their sight, we're grasshoppers. They're excluding the sight of the only one that really matters, and that is in God's sight, they are victors. Amen. And they miss that because of the fear of man. So what about you today? Let's bring it down to us today. It's easy to point fingers at the people in the day of Moses, but let's think about it ourselves. Let me ask you, do you get intimidated when you see the powers of evil? Does it keep you from doing what God's called you to do? I know we hear bad news all the time. All you have to do is watch Fox News or CNN. You see bad news. You see our, even our religious rights sometimes being stripped away. And we, do we get intimidated by that? Or do we get excited about what God's going to do? Or do you follow the crowd when you should be making a stand for Christ? Maybe all the people at work are encouraging you to do something that you shouldn't do. And you do it. You follow the crowd. Whatever it might be. When you should be taking a stand. Tell you, we live in a culture where churches are falling into this day in and day out. The culture starts saying, well, we define marriage in a different way. And it becomes such a strong pressure that there are churches caving into that. Saying, okay, we'll define marriage the way the world defines marriage. Oh, but God says it's defined a certain way. He said it's right here, Genesis 1 and 2. And we say, oh, it doesn't really matter because we fear men over God. May that never be true of heritage. Amen? Amen. We follow God over men every day. How are you in your personal life? Are you following God by making a, a stand for Him? Or are you following the crowd? <laughs> Number three, do you worry that things aren't going to turn out okay? Because really, when you think about it, that means we're not trusting in the promises of God. God says in Romans 8, all things work together for good to them that are called, to them who, are, uh, to them who love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Even the bad things, in, do you believe that God allows the bad things in your life? For your benefit, then are we going to worry when they happen? Or are we going to look for opportunities to learn and grow? And number number four, do you show favoritism to those who have had earthly success? You kind of get nervous and shake because a famous person comes to, into the room, or or if you get an opportunity to to hear maybe your favorite author or an actor or whatever it might be. When, you know what? They're people just like you. Just like me. You ought to see him like God sees him. Or do you show favoritism? Do you show favoritism when someone comes in the door and maybe they don't look like us or dress like us? Do we make assumptions about them? Or do we love them? And we show them the way and bring them in as part of our family. Amen? Amen. The, the moment we begin to recognize these things and confess these things and, and we remove the, the obstacle of the fear of man then we're opening the doors to have the fear of God, which is the beginning of the way of wisdom. Let's pray. Let's, let's uh, stand together as we pray. And I just want to let you know that in a moment as we close, if you would like, if you notice that there's some area in your life that the Lord is speaking to you, I want to give you an opportunity to come forward. You can come and just pray to the Lord, confess things to the Lord. You can do it from your seat as well if you want to do that as, as well. But if you've recognized that there's any fear of man in you today, do not leave without having a conversation with God. And as we pray, this is a great time to do that. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, at the beginning of the service, we sang, I am a friend of God. 
Lord, if we really grasp that concept, then the enemies would not intimidate us. We would not be tempted to follow the crowds. We would not be tempted to value people over their success. Lord, we would just trust fully in you. And Lord, if there's anyone here that has not met you personally, for whatever reason they've feared man more than you, and they've never accepted you, they've never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, never understood that he died on the cross to pay for their sins. Lord, don't let them leave this place without talking to me or one of the pastors so we can show them from your word how they can know and have the confidence that you are with them and nothing they